Hello and welcome to the UATX podcast. This is episode 10 and I am here today with Adam Ding. Adam is a guest and he was part of our UATX Forbidden Conversations. This is one of our side quests that we're doing at the moment to expand beyond our Polaris Fellows. I haven't met Adam in person, but I think he's got a huge amount of to say, a very interesting background. I think you're really going to enjoy the show today. Adam, welcome to the UATX podcast. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. So you said before, just when we were chatting back in the green room, uh, that you're based in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, I have right. heard that Princeton, New Jersey isn't, it's, not, it's known for its university and it's not known for much else. So I'm guessing you're studying there at the moment. Oh well, yeah, I'm here right now. I think it's a great campus, you know, very green buildings all over. It's an old, nice place to be. It reminds me a little bit of old Parkland in Dallas where we had our forbidden courses. So I like the place, you know, the summers do get a bit hot, but that's all right. Great scenery. I think it's probably the best place in New Jersey. No, I, I had a bunch of friends who I didn't, I don't think I had many friends who went to Princeton, but the, um, the Australian under 23 rowing program mm. is based out of Princeton. Um, I see. that most of, you know, so all the, all the guys who go to the Olympics, they're based out of Canberra and Sydney. So they row in Australia, but there are so many Australians that have now gone over to the U S to like, be part of like Ivy League teams. It's easy to have a US-based Australian team than an Australia-based Australia team. So that's my only sort of uh, experience with Princeton. But I, I haven't picked many. I haven't picked my like college sports teams in the US. I picked my uh, professionals because Denver's fortunate enough to have a four-team, uh, a four-sports, four-sport city. You do have them all. They're doing pretty well. Well, the, the the Nuggets are doing very well. I haven't yeah. gone to the the Rockies suck. Oh, <laughs> that's okay. Um, Football-wise, not so well either. But I think the hockey team won the championship last year. If I they I did. They, yep. But when I was coming to Denver uh, from Australia, everyone was like, uh, "Oh, do you follow American football?" I'm like, uh, "Not really." They're like, "Oh, you're gonna love it." Denver has this guy called Russell Wilson. Oh, he's, he's no the good. Best. He's and I'm like, dude, this guy sucks. Well, yeah. he doesn't suck. He's better than me. But. Like, I don't know enough about it, but I know enough about it to know that he definitely wasn't the Tom Brady that I was expecting. You see, he um, was good. He fought Tom Brady once and then he lost because he threw an interception on the one-yard line. He should have just ran it in, you know. Super Bowl Forty Nine. I'm sure everyone knows about that. I'm sure. Because yeah. uh, when he was out at Seattle, was he? That's when he was in Seattle, yeah. yeah. The funniest thing I think about Russell Wilson is he doesn't look like the rest of the most quarterbacks I see. Like, most quarterbacks I see are like, really tall with really long limbs um, and like like uh, the kind of person you could think would be good at every sport. But when I see Russell, I'm like, dude, you look like a little, he looks like a, he's a bit chunkier than the rest of them. Yeah. And I'm like, did you go to preseason? Like, dude, I remember you're carrying a bit, like just a couple more pounds than I would have expected for like a pro league uh, quarterback. Yeah, he can run though. He can run. His passing skills are okay, but yeah, he is a bit small. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so yeah, that's for that, that, that for those who are our, our sporting fans, this has become the uh, the ESPN show. Do you have a favorite big four sport? Well, I I used to follow football quite closely. In fact, I was a big Tom Brady fan, and once he moved out of New England, that was yep. over. And you know, just here and there, looking, I, I like I like when countries fight. So you know, watching the World Cup, looking at yep. Wimbledon right now coming up is pretty good as well. So that tournament's going nicely and. I think just generally, you know, whenever there's a sport, I just want to look at the numbers. I don't care too much about the players and their histories. I just see the scores, which country's up, pick one country to root for, and then that's how we yeah. do it. 
Um, I'm guessing you read Basketball. Oh, not Basketball. Uh, Moneyball. Yes. That was anyone, a... who's got, anyone who likes the intersection of numbers and sports, mm-hmm. that's the Bible. Yep. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, if I, for those who are listening, many people have uh, watched the movie. It's good. The book's really good as well. I love Anyone listening wants a uh, suggestion and they're interested in this space. The Signal and the Noise. It's one of the best books on this topic I've ever read. It's written by Nate Silver, um, oh, who was the founder of 538. Yeah. And he talks about, obviously he's like, he's, yeah, he's like the Tom Brady of data. Like the one person, if anyone knows anything, they know him. Um, and he wrote this book and it's just a series of vignettes of things that, of data that like pops out interspersed with this sort of life story. Uh, Cause he's had an interesting life. You know, he was working like he's he, obviously he was very big into baseball and mm. made, and then he spent a bit of time making money in poker. Um, and just someone who seems to be, has tried trod an interesting path. And, you know, as a kid, you probably think there's no way, you know, I'm a really smart kid. I'm going to make my fortune out of running a blog. Um, just shows you that this uh, country still remains a land of opportunities. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, <clears throat> Adam, sorry about that. I've got this on chest infection, which hasn't gone away. Um, I would like, to, you've obviously, <clears throat> perhaps you've listened to the show before. Uh, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. And so would our listeners. So why don't you kick us off? And the question I always like to ask is, tell me in which ways you grew up in a typical American, you had a typical American childhood. In what ways was your childhood different? Mm. Well, I think my childhood was quite different in many ways. I would begin by saying, first of all, I have an absolute passion for mathematics. I think the world can be explained purely in terms of math. Looking at the different academic fields or the ways in which we can think about the universe, I think mathematics is the best. You know, that would probably make sense because I'm Chinese. So obviously I was geared towards mathematics. But I think it's great to study patterns. I like to look at shapes and numbers. I would say those are my main ways of interpreting the world. On my website, adamdane.com, my flagship article is about what I call the triplex mindset, which is how I think about what I'm going through right now, what the future can hold. And usually it's done through looking at numbers, looking at shapes, and then looking at how they interact with each other. So that's how I, you know, when I'm, when I'm going in a seminar or when I'm attending something, I look at it in terms of, all right, so what are the different assets we have right now? How can they move around? So it's like, I'm visualizing what can happen at any time. So I would say that's a way in which it was different. I also can you put some was, color on that in the way that you see the world. And what's that? Can you put some color on that? And you, as you said, like I see the world via, I see the world through like numbers. And I see the world through shapes. Yeah, um, that's pretty abstract. Can you make that a little bit more concrete for our listeners? Yeah. Well, one way I think about it is when you look at military diagrams, when you look at the campaigns that soldiers have gone through, that's how yeah. I tend to visualize things. When I'm in a debate. I look at the arguments, but instead of thinking about them in terms of words or verbal cues, I look at, you know, this argument looks like a big a big circle, and it feels like it's going to be blue to me. And this blue argument right now is running against the green triangle. So it's the way my mind thinks. It's how I piece together things. And then I say, okay, so if the blue circle looks like this, and these arguments have been made, this is how I can attack it with a triangle. So it's a way for me to visualize and give more dynamism to whatever it is I'm dealing with. I think this is particularly vibrant in music when I'm 
you know, I played piano for 10 years. I, I'm a bit out of my prime, but I can still, you know, I, I still love doing it. But yeah. when I think music is a better example because when you think about notes, that's one of the most abstract ideas there is. You know, you can talk about the emotions that you feel when you're playing a particular piece. How do you conceptualize this in terms of more physical or practical objects? You can't yeah. really, but I think that's that's the beauty of it. And it's the beauty of math as well is that it lies in the abstract, but it's there that you get the pure human capability to imagine, to create. You know, we often ask this question in the AI age, what makes humans unique? I think that's it. I think it's our creative imagination. And I would say if you have an abstract essence like mathematics or music mm-hmm. and you can visualize or think about it in ways that, you know, like shapes or numbers, then that's a way in which you can create. It's not, it's not something you can explain most easily or tangibly, but it is what makes sense and what produces the results in the end. I love the example you gave with music because you're right. It's taking something extremely abstract, extremely abstract. But then when you apply the rules to it, it produces a real tangible result. Um, two things that came to mind instantly was, uh, so I played trombone at school. Okay. And because I was quite tall and they were like, we need some, the hardest thing with like kids is like with a trombone is you need enough arm, like wingspan to be able to play the bottom notes. Um, but you know, I remember the, like this brain explosion I had when we learned about the difference between major and minor keys and minor key, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the minor key, you're just dropping like the third or the fifth note. Yeah. You're copying, uh, the third. Yep. The third. Yep. That's right. And you're like, what? So you're just going for duh, duh, duh. and all of a sudden you create a happy song becomes a sad song. And you're like, how does that happen? How does something like tweaking the engine just a little like notch and it's not much it's like uh, uh, um, create an entirely new emotional landscape which is not just true in western music it's true across it's like cross-cultural you know it's not like oh if i hear this sound it makes me sad no it seems to be something that's super embedded with us and then when i changed school when i went to high school uh our school was filled with ruffians so we didn't have enough people to create a orchestra but we did have a very good jazz program and i I remember hearing this like the history of jazz is so amazing because you know it's american music um and and it's truly a it's what it way he described it was um african music with western instruments you know because all the slaves came over um and they brought with them their musical um their musical heritage and then they were able to play it with western instruments and that collision created something so new and so beautiful but the whole or a big part of jazz is obviously improvisation. And I was like, oh, shit, yeah, how good. I could just play whatever I want. And our teacher was like, no. But there are like eight, like the, you know, the, 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 what is it, the eight bar blues. There are certain notes that you can play that will sound good in any order. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, you know, this has been derived from the abstraction. Like why do these certain frequencies sound better than other frequencies? We will never know. But again, cross-culturally that we have all decided as a species, that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to share those uh, experiences with you because I think it's um, super interesting. So, okay. So, so as you said, you were growing up. Um, let's wind, wind back a bit. You're very interested in mathematics. You're very interested in piano. Mm-hmm. Um, and growing up where? Also in Princeton, New Jersey. So I've oh, always been around here a little bit. Yeah. You're local. And yeah, okay, go on. 
Yeah, it's been it's been a nice town. I think a lot a lot more Asian. You know, in school it was all Indian people. It's sixty percent Indian, twenty percent Chinese, twenty percent everyone else. So it was obviously you know we were very good at the spelling bee. <laughs> yep. But you know, geography bee came up and it was good and. I I did pretty well, I would say. Spelling bee. Usually, I would lose to an Indian girl or two, but it's okay. <laughs> Geography bee. I would come back and defeat them, but I always lost to this one Indian guy. But you have a lot of fun, and I think many of these pattern recognition、uh, type competitions, like the Geography bee or the Spelling bee, that's that's what I like to do. I want to see patterns because I think that that's the fabric of our reality. I think looking for how things are grouped and how we can organize them, that type of quantitative analytical mindset is. Is how I've been viewing the world, and I think that's generally quite different than how most Americans would perceive things. Because one of my friends in the spring semester at MIT, we were discussing the sixteen personalities, which is the pretty、yep. famous test of you know introvert, extrovert, and so on.、Yep. And one of the factors was most people tend to be evenly split on extrovert, introvert, as well as judging, perceiving, which actually doesn't have to do with those two words. It's more of Whether you're more spontaneous and you can change your plans and adaptable, or whether you're more scheduled and fixed on how you've set things up, and they're also evenly split on thinking versus feeling as your primary way of anal- analyzing、yeah. the things around you. Interestingly, there is one quality: intuitive versus、uh, sensing. I believe it is, and intuitive would be you think of objects in the abstract. So if I see a, let's say, a trumpet. I would tend to think of it as this is a music maker, or this can produce sound in these ways, rather than this is a, a gold instrument with three valves. And the the observing or the sensing would be you directly see things as they are, but you don't think、mm. of them in the abstract. And shockingly, when the sixteen personalities test is conducted, it tends to be that seventy percent of the people or so are actually sensing, so they see exactly what there is to see in terms of the five senses, and only thirty percent are that. Intuitive, abstract, theoretical. This is what objects can represent, rather than this is what the objects are. So, I would say that's one of the reasons why I felt so different, so to speak, when I would have that intuitive mindset when I applied it using principles of mathematics and music. So that's an explanation for how this came about. But if we're looking、yeah. at other ways, yeah, go ahead. No, the floor is yours. Keep going. Yep. Well. Another way in which I differ, and this is going in a completely different、yeah. direction. I did not watch much television. Now, American—that、oh, is an American outsider. That, that, that is different. Yeah. Well, most Americans, I think, ninety-five percent or something. You know, they got a TV in their living room and、mm. they're watching all the time. And I, I didn't really like television. I, I didn't understand the mystique of it. You know, it flowed too fast. And you know, here was the news and advertisement one, advertisement two, and then、yep. back on it again. And it was very confusing to me. And I, you know, what's the point of this? I sh- I should be studying my mathematics right now. That's that's what I should be doing. But I did not really keep up with the flow there. So I also did not use social media as a kid, and I still don't have you know, social media. So that's another big one in the differentiator. You know, in the schools, people were going crazy trying to be popular. You know, they were posting images of themselves and talking about their friends and bragging who has the best whatever. I was thinking, why are you doing all of this? There's there's not really much meaning you can attach to this. You know. Might as well focus on something other than instant gratification. So I was very confused by the mass media, the social media. And then ten years later, it turns out maybe it's not that good for people. And I'm thinking, I'm sitting here. I I I've been saying this for ten years. Y'all just y'all should be paying me dividends or something. <laughs> I mean, the first like here's what here's the first thing that came to my mind was my I'm a bit older than you, 
but I do, I, I, I love Gen Z slang. So not oh. all of it, but okay. my favorite, my favorite term hands down is NPC. <laughs> do yep. you think there's a, do you see a lot of NPCs? Cause you are described, you seem like someone who, like, I imagine you see a lot of them around you. Well, I try not to notice. But you do. <laughs> Interesting so much. Um, here's a, here's the first. There's so much to unpack there. Um, the 16 personalities. I'm a real skeptic of it. Okay. Um, and I'll tell you why. So mm-hmm. the first is there's no – it's not used in science. And the reason for that is that it doesn't explain a lot and it the results that you create are not consistent over time. That's um, wonderful, yeah. But the reason it is used is because there are no bad answers. Because the one that the psychologists use is the um, big five. Some people call it ocean. So ocean. There five, there's, there's five characteristics. Openness, conscientious, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And if you're at, if you work at a large corporate company and they're like, let's say everyone do the Maya Briggs 16 personalities. Everyone will be like, oh, I'm an extrovert and I'm a feeler. And people are like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that's so you. And it's like, dude, whatever. Like, there's no bad answers. Uh, and a lot of people, once they, you give them something, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I guess that's kind of me. The thing with um, the thing with Ocean is that there are, a, there are at least two um, qualities which people are very sensitive to being aware of, mm-hmm. which is conscientiousness. I mean, this isn't a corporate environment. Mm-hmm. Conscientiousness, which is obviously, not obviously, it's based out of two components. Industriousness, your ability to work hard consistently and not feel like a lot of pain out of it. Um, and orderliness, uh, mm-hmm. which is your d- desire to keep things in, you know, people who keep their room really tidy. Um, like you see these, you know, people like um, General McMaster and stuff. Those guys must be like 99.9s, uh, <laughs> just because they like everyone, everything organized and they never stop working. Um, so if you get like a sub 10 on that and everyone knows that, boy, your, your days there are numbered. But that's yep. not the worst one. The worst one's neuroticism, which is uh, a word that everyone uses, but most people don't really understand the definition of it. It's just your propensity to have negative emotions. Um, I'm ver- I've done the test. I'm very fortunate that I'm quite low in that, like very low in that. I've always been someone who's had a very well-regulated mood, which is a blessing. Um, but some people are not. And when you meet those people... It's it could sometimes be a very hot, a big uphill battle. So if you meet someone who's like, oh, I'm a feeler, you're like, oh, cool. But if you're like, I'm the 99th percentile for neuroticisms, people will, I mean, they'll find out eventually because you, at that point, there's no way you can really mask your behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's very, very difficult to. But once people are aware of that, like, oh, crazy Adam, you know, like <laughs> there's no way we're going to put him on the, um, <laughs> we're going to put him on the, uh, up and coming trip. Um, I love I love the talk talking about I love digging into the childhood stuff. But let's go wind back a little bit later. Mm-hmm. You, um, I know that there's you know ninth generation Chinese families in the United States. You know ones who came through the gold rush, similar to like Australia. Um, but oh, I, I, tell I, me I, about I your family. Yeah, I'm one. I want the later ones. Yep. Yeah, uh, most Chinese migration is obviously in. Yeah, the I, I think I'm second generation. My parents, you know, they were born in China. They came to the U.S. in the turn of the century, and then here I am. So, I do visit China on occasion. You know, I went there for school one month in 2015. It was part of the yeah. vacation, but 
my parent, uh, my mom and my uncle must have colluded to put me in school. But nevertheless, I love the experience. Yeah. And then usually you know, when I see Chinese students, actual international Chinese students in yeah. MIT, they tell you you'll love it for a few months. But if you spend years in that thing like me, you'll grow to hate it. But I did love the experience, of course. And I think it was it was wonderful. It was quite different from America. You know, it was seventh grade. So back then I had just finished seventh grade in New Jersey. Yeah. Went over there. The classes were definitely more challenging, except the English, of course. Yeah. But the mathematics they were teaching, it was Olympiad math. And I asked about, is this the advanced course? Because in America, we have advanced courses. We have yeah. standard tracks. And they say, no, this is actually the normal course. And some of the problems were quite interesting. One of them yeah. was about... And one of them actually showed up on the end of the year test. It was about special triangles. It's like, suppose you had an isosceles triangle that looked like this. And how many different isosceles triangles could you add on to this isosceles triangle so that the resulting combination is also isosceles? So it was like a gnomon, I think is how you pronounce it. But for isosceles, so it was, it was you were a, like what, 14 at this, at this time. Yeah, I was 14 at the time. Interesting. I mean, people, I hear a lot about people who are like, They'll say, you know, America is risking its potential superpower status by its inability to educate its young people at a standard that is being expected yeah. overseas, particularly um, East Asia. Um, and you've and you've experienced this, yeah, firsthand. Yeah, I got um, a, I, yeah. <laughs> I got a seventy-one on the math test, which I think was about average in the class. So, you know. Uh, I don't want to blame it on the fact that I, I my Chinese reading was not up to date, but I do want to say it was a good test. Kudos to the designers, obviously, for building something that challenged me throughout those, I believe it was three hours or one and a half hours, but either way, it yeah. was a great test. Geography too. I, I don't think we had a formal final geography exam, but I, I did like the geography there. I felt like finally, these are the types of questions that I want to see. You know, it's like... Yeah. When you go through, let's say, when you go from Cairo to Singapore, what straits do you need to cross? What oceans do you need to cross? And this is what I like to do. This is this is the type of question. You know, as a child, too, this is also another way in which I dif differ from most Americans. They might be outside playing sports or they might be reading their, not, uh, their fiction stories, especially yeah. the girls. No, I was just sitting down there with the atlases. I was looking through. I was investigating the continents, thinking about the shapes of the different yeah. countries, looking at their flags and culture. So... That's also, not, you know, while they were getting their emotional quotient up from reading literature and, you know, uh, the maybe the 10th grade equivalent of Little Dog on the Prairie or whatever it is, yeah. I was looking at the atlases and I had a great time with that. So that's another yeah. difference. I mean, we had, when I was growing up, we had a, the biggest book we ever owned. It must have been like four or five pounds, maybe more. Was it five pounds? No, it would have been like 10 pounds. It was a big book. So I'm still trying to do my... Uh, Imperial metric conversions. Um, but it was the Times of England, which is a big newspaper, um, uh -huh. Atlas of the World. Ooh. And it was like, it was huge. Oh, like, that thing is giant. I, yeah. yeah, it's awesome. Like, if you haven't had one, if you like get one for your 21st birthday or like tell your parents <laughs> that if, uh -huh. if, you, if they love you, like you'll get them one. Um, <laughs> and it is the cool thing about it was it was old. Not that old. It was probably like from the eighties, okay. and one of the coolest things, like as a kid, that is like a mind-bursting experience in terms of geography is you think the map's like the periodic table; it's locked in, mm -hmm. but it's not. Like even questions. Like, I remember, like as a kid, being like, "I want." I used to ask my mum a lot of questions, like, "How many countries in the world?" I was like, "A lot." Oh, and I asked yeah. my dad, and he's like, "Nobody knows." 
Look, I'm gonna bring up the T word. It's 195. Taiwan's not a country; it belongs to yeah. China. It's 195. Okay. It's 190. Yeah, but what about Western Sahara? What oh, about no, not a country? Not a country. Uh, I think I, do count, I usually do count Palestine in there. Yeah. Palestine's the the other one. Um, then there's all these countries like Sealand. Not a country. Yeah. That little platform you get. I mean, there's also, I think it's called Malaysia in the U S some guy just inside Nevada, he declared independence and it's yeah. apparently still at war with East Germany. That's not a country. Yeah. Those, and then there's all the ones with the separative movement, like Catalonia. Um, that's, they're always like Transnistria or something in Moldova moving around. Um, like the North Sentinel Islands. They're oh, Indian. Yeah. Are they? Like, they're, 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 they're not like yeah, getting around Modi. You know, they don't even know who he is. They just know that there's like people that are not like them that live out on the um, beyond the sea. Are they a country? Depends. Ask them. Yeah. They're not Indian. They they just, you know, that, that, that there's two countries. For them, there are only two countries in the world. Them and everyone else. Them and everyone else, you know. So that's so, you know, there's all those, um, so that whole idea. And then even within, you can just say, okay, let's organize the map. But then mm. it comes down to, um, you know, you think there's a amount of countries. But there's a new country that emerges, like on average, a new country emerges every three or four years. Sounds about right. Yeah, you know, I think the most recent one was like South Sudan. And there's been a bit of a... There's been a bit of a gap. There might be a new one in the next year or so. I wouldn't be surprised if a new country is formed in Ukraine, which could be like, I don't know what they'd call it. Let's just call it Eastern Ukraine. New Russia. New Russia. Yeah, exactly. Um, Texas Putin's, could actually secede. <laughs> Texas could secede. Putin's paradise. You know, um, it's I, it was very funny. If you ever read these, uh, like, we are very, very bad at predicting the future, Adam, as I'm sure you're aware. Reading all these articles from like 2015 and whatnot about like um, Caxit, like California oh. leaving. The, they're like, we're so much better than the rest of the union. We're going to leave. Um, or even like this whole concept of um, like, let's leave. Like even San Francisco is like, why don't we just make ourselves a city state and we can just like live here in Elysium and just like pump out technical like well, innovation and just import food and live our best <laughs> lives. To be honest, San Francisco is probably closer to a shithole given how much you know feces on the streets. But I do like the idea of secession. I think in the U.S. regionally, it's very, very hard to change the borders. And this is something I found interesting. Mm -hmm. Other countries, especially in Asia and Europe, where it's no, especially in Asia, where it's very crowded. China's got disputes with probably half its neighbors, but oh, yeah. in the U.S., everything seems peaceful since the civil war, you know, since Alaska, Hawaii got added in. There have been no state to state disputes, but I, I hope that changes. I'm a little bit bored sitting around here. With <laughs> every, everything's the exact same all the time. Yeah. Greater Idaho could take off, though. So that's the Oregon rural counties, which are predominantly red. They don't want to be under Portland and Salem. So they say, let's join Idaho. And I think I think it would be good to see if that can actually get off the ground. They're collecting signatures and all. I find that very interesting because, like, if you look at the trend line, it was you know a new state would be added every um, you know every five years for the first hundred years of the union. A new state was being created like regularly, and it just stopped. I mean, there's obviously Hawaii and Alaska, mm -hmm. and I guess Puerto Rico could be the uh, 
would be the first one on the block or DC. Don't get um, I don't. I don't think that's happening anytime soon. Um, but you're right. It's America is exceptional in the sense of how peaceful it is internally. Um, as a outsider coming here, there's a lot of a lot, one thing I always learned was a lot of foreigners are very critical of Americans in saying that Americans don't. Tr- a lot of Americans don't own passports. A lot of Americans haven't been abroad. Mm-hmm. And my answer to that is, if you live in America, you don't have to go abroad because the whole world is here. Like the right. difference between New York and New Orleans is greater than the difference between like Paris and Berlin. Everyone just sees the language difference and they're like, oh, that's a different thing. But EU and uh, the sort of blending of European culture has made it, there are differences. I used to live in Germany. Um, but there is, there's still a lot of hom- homogenous European culture that exists there. And because people speak different languages, they see much bigger gaps between populations. But yeah, the average person living in Manhattan versus the average person living in like Louisiana is totally, totally different. Um, and being able to just, you know, the good thing, I live in Central, um, when I say Central America, the center of America in some ways, um, next to a big airport. I've been very fortunate to visit a bunch of states so far. My goal is to visit all of them. Okay. Um, which is something that most Have Americans been in like Jersey yet? count. Have you been in New Jersey? I've been in New Jersey. All right. in New Jersey. I've been in New York. Mm. Um, so that doesn't really count. Yeah, that doesn't um, count. <laughs> but, but no, but I, I mean, I don't want to be like, oh, you're a bit of Dubai, you know, the airport. No, I want to be like, I want to do the real deal. Um, I speak to so many Americans and they're like, oh, you don't have to do it. You don't have to go to Iowa. I'm like, I want to go to Iowa. Like, what's it like out there? You know, like, how is it this state which is filled with all these, like, farmers who just grow corn but are, like, deeply enamored and take the responsibility of being the first primary state so, so importantly. It's like a national, like, duty that all these people have uh, hoisted onto their shoulder and carried. Um Mm. My friend and I are thinking of going there for the uh, caucuses next year in February to oh. see see it all in real life. Um, that would be interesting. I did see the RFK Jr. speech in Boston, actually, because I was at MIT in the time. It was yeah. April 19th, and you know, Team Kennedy just popped up on my radar, and I said, wow, this guy's actually doing something in Boston. You know, All of the Trump rallies are just not in the Northeast, and all of the other candidates, yep. they generally don't you know, It's secure Democratic, but... RFK is giving something big in Boston. I got to go and show up. And it was in, it was in the Park Plaza, which is a massive hotel. They call it a city within a city. But I think the Hilton Anatole is actually even bigger. And they don't even call it, you know, a city within Dallas. But nice. it was great. He just he talked mostly about the environment. It was a almost a two hour speech. We got our large Kennedy signs and over a thousand people. So it was a it was a great atmosphere. I think RFK is the difference in the Democratic Party. He's not like the rest of them. Uh, I think he does capture the renegade vote quite well, but against the Democratic superdelegates, I don't know what he's going to do. But it was... I haven't made my mind up on um, RFK. He certainly brought a lot of attention, but he strikes me as... I don't know how many people... I I think I was reading something like The Atlantic, which, you know, full disclosure, like they're not a perfect news organization, but they're they're not complete horseshit that there's no voter for him. There's a lot of people who say they like him, but when push comes to shove, they're going to get behind... um, Trump or Biden, probably. Trump or Biden, you know. And, but he, I mean, 
What do you like about him? What don't you like about him? Let's do a bit of uh, Peter Bogosian. Well, I think he's actually, obviously he's one of the extremely few critics of the vaccines, which, you know, I absolutely admire out of him. How many voices do you say, how many voices do you see saying that in 2020, 2021? Not many. Mm. Now everyone wants to jump on the back line and say, hey, I was against the lockdown. No, you weren't. You probably weren't. But RFK was there all the time, I think. Do, uh, done a great job with the environment as well. He discussed his cleanups on the Hudson. I think he strikes me as something who has gone with his principles all the while. There's that running meme that any you know, if the establishment is targeting anyone, that probably means they're doing yeah. something right. And I think that's definitely true in this case. Yeah. He does place. Uh, he keeps his body fit. You know, a lot of people who yeah. hate him still do see that he got a lot of muscles when he's doing those push-ups. So, gotta yeah. give him respect. He's 69. That's not something easy to keep up. Obviously, one of his main detractors is his voice. You know, he, I think he has a larynx problem, but compared to you know Joe Biden, I don't think I would be too worried about that. I also think right. Kennedy is more of a traditional American, still preserves some of the patriotism effect that the other Democrat candidates have long done away. You know, America is a horrible nation and we need to fix you know, white supremacy and all that. But RFK, at least he strikes a more measured tone in terms of that. Uh, he's also, I think... The right wing does like him for his renegade stances on, of yep. course, the vaccine issue and Russia, Ukraine, too. He says, I want to mediate peace. I don't want Ukraine to be the meat grinder against Russia. And I don't think we should be funding this to create the same sort of surveillance state that emerged after the Patriot Act, for instance. So I think he's bucking the trend there. Things that I don't like as much about him. Well, one, he has a bit of trouble controlling his household because, you know, Cheryl Hines is not behind him on the vaccine issue. So I'm just thinking if you can't control your house that effectively, how are you going to con- how are you going to control the country? Is so Cheryl Hines is wife. OK, yep. Yeah, actress as well. And they disagree on a couple of things. I also think RFK, when when one of my friends and I were discussing this guy doesn't really have a chance to win. So what should his campaign strategy be? Since you can't win, you might as well get as much truth out there as possible. Don't try to be mild. Don't yeah. tone down your conspiracy side. Just go all out. Explain yeah. the issues that need to exp- be explained, a bit like what Tucker Carlson is doing recently. And during his speech, he never mentioned the V word. He barely mentioned you know, things like that. He spent a lot of time on, you know, when I, in the 1980s, you know, when the girls were still dressed up in miniskirts or something, I was out there fighting corruption in the Hudson. I'm thinking, man, that's that's almost 40 years behind you right now. You got to, you got to, <laughs> now affecting us. And he eventually, he weaseled around. He did talk about the lockdowns. I think he was good in pinning some blame on Trump. You know, you should have paid more attention to this issue, not just say, oh, you know, oh, I, I shouldn't have locked, you know, I shouldn't have allowed the lockdowns to take place. So I think it's good. He's criticizing people on both sides. So when yeah. he says heal the divide, I do, I do think he has a genuine chance at doing that. But all in all, I think, as, as you did mention, people do tend to, there's, Generally, less people who vehemently dislike him from both parties, but he's more of a, I, you know, I get the tr- the right wing dissidents to support me because of my maverick issues, but I also do have the traditional Democrat base in that I do care about equality, ending racism, and other buzzwords like that. So I think he could garner folk support, although in the establishment he's definitely not popular. But I think he, you know, compared to everyone else in the Democratic Party, I would think. He's doing an all right job. You know, I still do have my Kennedy flyer there. I might yep. pop it out on occasion. But I think overall, he's an interesting candidate and someone who deserves some attention. I think my theory on it is that the people are very cynical now. 
And I think part of that is that we are advertised to a lot. Um, and there's a lot of, everyone's always like, what's behind the curtain? Is there an ulterior motive, et cetera, et cetera. And that's probably cause of a whole of a lifetime of seeing, you know, Kim Kardashian is sponsoring this like $7 perfume. And you think, well, that can't be true, but there's just this disingenuousness that has like, um, and with social media, it's escalated at another level. Like we all think that people are, you know, living their dream. You know, you see these pictures of people walking past like the Taj Mahal and it's completely empty. And anyone yeah. who's been to Taj Mahal knows that's never happened. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing with social media. It's usually fake or Photoshopped or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, what you're seeing from them is just the tip of the iceberg. They never show you their struggles. They never tell you how they really are. But most importantly, it's only superficial characteristics. You just yes. say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm in front of this. But who are you actually? Show me what you're like as a person. Let's have a yeah. conversation. Don't just, you know, flash something in front of me yeah. and expect me to believe that actually is you. So there's no point to it. And so what I think that why Trump is so successful is that he is like, I'm a, and I'm not like, I have a balanced, I, I have a lot of opinions on Trump. Um, but I think what he, one thing he's very good at is he is not disingenuous. Um, he is who he is. He's a billionaire guy from a very wealthy family who like lived with the golden toilet in New York city. And that's who he is when he's in uh, Washington. And that's who he is when he's in New York. And that's who he is when he's out on the prairies. And I think there are so many people who, you know, I remember there would be all these pictures of Mitt Romney, who I think is a very upstanding person, but like he's obviously political advisors would be like, you're off to like Western Texas you need to wear like the hat and the boots and the buckle and you need to go down to the Texas State Fair and say, how's it going, y'all? And people are like, dude, you're it's a woman from Utah who's worked in bank, like in private yeah, equity. For, like, you're not that West. person. And that's where And then they'll be like, oh, but then everyone will like, you can just fool these like rubes into thinking that you're one of them. Well, yeah, when Trump would go down and he'd just be wearing his suit, and he's just like, "I wear a suit." Like, and people would be like, "I respect that." Like the yeah. fact that you are who you are, um, and I think that anyone who tries it, there's been so many people who have tried to imitate on the left and right, and every time they try to imitate, it's a complete failure. As I always say, Cory Booker is not Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and oh, he tries yeah. to be. He's probably watching the yeah. videos and stuff, and he tries to do like the embellishments and says the certain words. But it, it just feels like someone playing a role. Um, and then when I see, you know, and the people who are like, I'm the new Trump and I'm going to pretend, you know, I think DeSantis is trying to do it in his doing. Oh, yeah. His hand possible yeah. I'm just like, dude, your campaign is so easy. Just be like, I, I'm going to do a bunch of stuff that Trump did, but I'm not as crazy and I'm not 100 and I'm like 45 years old. Oh. That's it. That's all you have to say. And then just like live in the bunker, Biden style, and it's the merchant you sweep the board. I mean, I think Vivek um, is on a pretty smart strategy. The the Indian guy on the Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek, he's, yeah. he's stuck to who he is. I think he recently got to 10%, but he hasn't really attacked Trump or tried to imitate him. He's just saying, you know, this is who I am and yeah. here are my principles. And I think he's been running with that and he's probably not going to win in 2024. The primary. No. That is what's going to get him there in the long run, not imitating someone else. Well, for one, you'll always be riding their coattails. And for two, if that person goes down, you go down too. So what's the point of following around and hoping that you'll gain acceptance? You know, For every one cent they throw at you, they're going to be throwing $10 million at the other guy because that just shows how successful the other guy is. 
yeah, why do you want to be the great value, like the the knockoff version <laughs> at no marginal cost? Like it's a, it's it's not a um, it's not a strategy I would pursue. That's for sure. But I mean, we live in interesting times. That's for yeah. sure. And um, you know, like I wish all candidates all the best. Um, as I always say, like. You know, and I support them all. It's a difficult job, and I hope they I, I hope they do well, regardless of who they are. Um, okay, let's 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 roll back a little. Actually, do you want to talk about going to college, or do you want to talk about why your parents came to the United States? Sorry, say the first one again. Your time at college. Oh sure, yeah. Let's go with that. Um, so one of the most interesting thing I find, and I guess it's kind of uh, highlighted with this recent Supreme Court ruling, is admissions to the U.S. It's such a black box. It's so different to what I experienced in Australia, where you just, you got scored, uh, you did your final year exams, and you were given a percentile of how you, you, know, you ranked every single person, from the top to the bottom, you did your percentile score, you applied to the university, and they said, everyone above, we've got 100 spots, the first 100 people with the highest scores, get in, everyone else, thanks for, thanks for coming, uh, feel free to put in a transfer request next year, which is what I did. I sort of went to community college for the first two years and then transferred to Melbourne University. Um, and it, that was it. Didn't matter if I had like 10, you know, didn't matter that I played football, didn't matter that I, my mum had gone oh, there. You know. as in soccer as in real football? Australian rules football. Oh, okay. So a real, a real football. Um, yeah. And, you know, all that stuff was irrelevant to the fact of whether or not I was like suitable for like an academic program because like universities in a sense, are in in some ways well, meant to be academic institutions um, where versus a uh, sporting franchises or hedge funds. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear about what, because what, you went to MIT, what your winnowing process was, because you obviously couldn't go to all universities, mm-hmm. which ones you wanted to go to, why MIT, um, and that feeling of like preparing for it, and then that cathartic release, I imagine you felt when you got your admission. Sure, this is a story I love telling because you know it's just like the sports. Every you know, I whenever it's about sports and what you know, one side got yeah. this number and the other side. That's that's what I love yeah. talking about. So I mean, actually, I think the political process is kind of you know, it's kind of like a circus, but besides, yeah. besides the point. So I, I did treat college admissions as a sort of a game. I didn't see too much reason to stress about it. I would say. You know, they say that where I went to high school, it's pretty competitive and, you know, it's stressful. And I felt none of that. So I could not relate. But what I did find was, I think fundamentally when I looked at college, you see, I'm I'm very immature in a way. And that's, <laughs> I just looked at the colleges. Oh, you know, these are ranked well. I'm going to apply to these. I have no idea yeah. what your mission is. I don't know what you're trying to strike. Yeah. But maybe, you know, once I apply and I get in, then yeah. I'll start figuring out if this yeah. college is really for me which isn't yeah. the smartest thing to do and it's pretty immature. But I would say one thing that it did well was I made sure that my mission for college was, listen, whether or not I get into you is one thing, but what I'm going to do during the application process is I'm going to tell you what I'm like and whether you want me or not, that's up to you. Okay. Yeah. If you accept me, then I think we have some shared values and I think it's great. And it would be an honor for me to go there and yeah. probably be an honor for you to have me as well. If you don't like me, it's not because I was not up to par. It's just because we are just too different. So I said, look, here is who I am. Take me or reject me. I don't yeah. care. I just make the decision. right? Whereas I think the usual mindset going to college admissions is, oh, please, 
please let me in. I yeah. really want to be one of your 3% of students I get in. But yeah. the problem is then you don't control fate anymore. You, know, fate, you, you leave fate up to the co- That's the worst yeah. thing you can do. More important than the result or what, ha- or what happens in the end is that you are the one who is deciding how the chips are being thrown. So yeah. I thought to myself, look, I don't, you know, as you said, it's a black box. It's not an algorithm where it tells you Adam Ding is, you know, scores 128.5. That's good enough for first place, right? It's yeah. a black box. So I thought, look, the most I can do is just demonstrate who I am. And if you like me, you like me. If you don't, you don't. Yeah. And going in, I thought, the last few years, I've been going down what I would say a twin flame path. So on the one side, I have mathematics. And I have a, a bit of science. Now, I'd say I did really well in physics class, but science just never ticked the same way for me as it did for mathematics. But I also thought, I'm a guy who likes to think. I, you know, I love writing essays. I like, to, I like to public speak. I like to give lectures, give some dynamism. Yeah. That's not exactly what the STEM people like to do. But there's this other side of me, which is more humanities-based, which is more qualitative probing. That's the side through music through art, which I, I, I did painting back in the day, uh, through asking questions, through philosophy and inquiry in that sense. So I thought, yes, I do have mathematics on the one side, but I'm not your stereotypical Chinese guy who plays violin as well. I'm someone, I'm someone who also likes to hit up yeah. the humanities and yeah. the type of inquiry that asks, why are we here? What do we have to discover? That creativity. So instead of presenting myself as a one-dimensional, I'm super good in this area, that's why you should take me, I took a more look. I have two wings. One wing is mathematics, the, uh, the quantitative, the analytical. The other side is that music and art, the expressive, the visual, the creative. And that's how I structure myself, especially for MIT. Because MIT, I think, <laughs> they, you know, I, I nicknamed it the goofball school because that's where all the goofballs went. They were tinkering with stuff. But I think they have the greatest appreciation for that two-winged mentality, which is let's understand the tech and let's be the trailblazers for whatever new innovation comes our way. But let's also make sure that we have a creative heart to go along with that and, and have to spark curiosity. So I thought, this is how I'm going to do it. I did the exact same thing for the other seven schools. And I, that, that's a total of eight, which is relatively small. But then again, you know, I, I hear my friends applying for 30. I'm thinking, well, for me, that's not the process I want to do. I just want to keep it focused. That I, I'm only going there if I genuinely have an interest. So some people yeah. apply to all the Ivies. I, I, didn't feel, I didn't feel that in myself. Yeah. I did feel very important to hammer down the ones that I thought would give me the best, the best ability to demonstrate myself, to work with the professors and to gain better insights and to see what I can do. Because back then, and still a little bit now, the what am I going to do question loomed very large back then. And I thought, well, you know, you do well in school and then you go to college and you check off the boxes, right? Well, no, that's wrong. But either ways, that was the mentality going in. So applied to MIT. My early action was actually Harvard. And <laughs> one of the guys who got into Harvard a few years ago, he told us one of the biggest pieces of advice we can give you is to be humble. I was not humble on my application and I got destroyed. You know, they deferred me and then they destroyed me. So I said, okay, huck Harvard. Now, next up. So we got Princeton on the list. We got MIT. Those were the two I ended up spending the most time debating between. And I thought Princeton's very familiar. I know the environment. And I absolutely love the musical staff at Princeton. I actually went in for a live audition in 2019 for college and I played a few piano pieces and, you know, it was a great conversation. I was explaining why do I believe Bach gave this rest over here, this first phrase in A flat major suggests the following and it was a great chat. So I think in terms of cultured 
culture and music, I think Princeton had it. But I do think the innovation trend at MIT was just too strong. I thought looking at the way they advertised their college admissions week and their previews, Princeton was largely directed by the professors and you know, students, whenever they could, could eat a little bit off the, you know, it's like the, the big billionaires are dining at the table and the little dogs get a little bit of the scraps that are thrown off. You know, I, it felt a little bit like that for me at Princeton. It's like, you're a student, you're supposed to be driving the innovation, but I didn't see that too much. Whereas MIT, students take the lead on everything. We make things happen. The mindset of forward innovation was just too big. And especially considering how, you know, which would be the school that could carry America or carry me forward, right? And that was MIT. That's ultimately how I did it. As an outsider, I often see people talk about schools' personalities, which is not everything in Australia. Like most, there's only had, you know, especially with like the big eight. Uh, they're very large, like obviously publicly funded state schools, huge. Um, and there isn't like a sporting program. There isn't like a school pride program in the, you see in the US. Um, so, but I, in the US, people are like, oh, so-and-so, they look like such an Oregon State kind of guy. And I always look at these people and I'm like, there's no way as an outsider, it's often hard like to pick these things up. But I think most people, that impact that they have from their alma mater dissipates um, quite rapidly outside of like mad, uh, March Madness. There are two exceptions to that, MIT and Stanford. Because everyone I know from MIT, I know it's a self-selecting group, but the, the MIT polish is real. You know, it's goofballs, who just like, I don't want, you know, like there's plenty of smart people who go to like, you know, Wharton and stuff like that. And they'll be like, oh, yes. or Harvard. And they're like, look, I just need, I don't, like, like they come in with a mission. They're like, oh, it's four years here, two years at Goldman's, two right. years at GSB, two, yeah. then straight off to private equity. And like, I need it, you know, I've got it all figured out. That's what I don't like. I don't like the I've got it all figured out mentality because all yeah. too often it stifles your ability to get outside of it and to see what else is being offered. Yeah. One of the things. Yeah, yeah, one of the things. Like, crowd is like, I just want to be, I don't care if I'm homeless as long as I get to like crunch out like algos and, you know, or like maybe I earn like two and a half million a year down at Rentec and I, I live in like a two bedroom house and just like spend my time just writing python scripts or something you know like that feels like a very thin well i do think uh, mit suffers actually from yeah. the same problem there's the running joke that at mit you go in you want to change the world you're a vibrant freshman you come yeah. out you just want to go to hudson river trading so yeah. on the one hand while i do like the money making considerations of mit and finance is obviously very important to consider yeah. i don't like the idea that we're all just the best software programmers let's go work for somebody else who's going to be yeah. you know forever richer than us it's the same effect of following in trump's footsteps you know you want to be like trump that's the same way if you if you want yeah. to be at a high paying company all your life and just earn a lot of money yeah but what about the creativity aren't you built for something more than that and that's what i've what that's what's always unsettled me but yeah. of course the burden on me then is i'm gonna to have to create something i'm gonna go out there i will build a castle for myself you know st starting small maybe you know maybe i got a website i have a i have a channel and i express some views but eventually it's got to be something that I can call my own, that I can say when people say, what defines you? Then you can you can plant a flag down your castle and say, this is my venture. And this is what I created on the planet yeah. rather than, you know, I work here. Totally. Um, so, I'm get, so it must have been a great day when you got your admission. Well, when, when MIT came. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
actually, what I did for those eight schools was I drew large propaganda posters. So, you know, I had a, a facsimile of a city skyline and I was like, yeah. probability of getting in, you know, 72% and you know, probability of being different and so on. Yeah. MIT, I gave myself a 71% chance to get in. So nice. when I did get in, I just stared at the screen for a moment. I didn't say anything. And then five minutes later, I started screaming yeah. and sweat just starts falling down. And I think to myself, okay, so now we actually did it. Now what happens? You know, yeah. this was more or less expected, but now we have to actually do something. You can't stop here. You can never yeah. stop. You never own success. You rent it for a while and then it disappears and then you're back to zero and you have to keep building. So yeah. that's that's what I thought to myself. I thought, look, we got in here, but, you know, that really wasn't the such hard a hard just beginning. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Um, what did you learn at MIT that surprised you? That surprised me? Well, I think the professors are the biggest underrated resource at MIT. 100%. I think generally students spend a great deal of time talking with each other and bouncing ideas around. But as with high school students, I think there's a general fear of speaking with those higher up because yeah. you're not good enough, so to speak. Back yeah. in 11th grade, I had a very challenging AP English language teacher. And I, actually, yeah. I think she's one of the greatest teachers I've ever had because she was so yeah. strict. But what I made sure yes. to do was whenever, whenever I got a 68 on an essay, I would ask, look, this is what I was thinking. This is how this is how I processed it. What are the ways in which I can improve or what are the big ideas that I should look for? So instead of hiding away from my struggles, I would always be upfront and say, look, I know I got this. Now let's walk through this and tell me how I can perform better. And I think this is one of the big comeback stories. You know, I started off with a with an 83% in the first quarter. In the end, I was getting 95s, 96s. I, I crossed the A line some sometime near the end. But I think it's that same mentality. It's, look, the professors obviously know more than me. I'm just an undergrad. So my idea is just let's capture as much of the brilliant essences that have allowed the professors to prosper, and let's see if we can incorporate some of that on their own. Because there's no way I'm as brilliant as them. But maybe if I, if I imbibe your mindset, and if I ask you, how did you think about things, that type of philosophy and strategy will get you the results you want. So in my, in my third year at MIT, I realized that, wait a minute, MIT is actually really famous partly because of its professors. So I went up to them, I interviewed a few of them, and I asked them, how did you get on your career path? And why are you doing what you do right now? Do you love what you're doing? Partially to understand how they view the world and to see how I can get there, but also for myself to analyze, is this something I want to do? Is this something I find viable or do I want to go down another path? But I think talking with professors also cures one of the biggest problems that I've had from going from a teenager to adult, which is, you know, how do you go from getting good grades or doing well in academics to making ideas happen, to getting that amount of money or to building the lifestyle that you want to see? And this is a very complicated problem, of course. It's no longer just, you know, tell me the capital of Rwanda. Now it's, you know... How do you build interpersonal connections? How do I scale up my business? How do I decide who to interact with and who not to? How do I create ideas and manage my own time? So now it's basically life itself is thrown at you. And, you know, this is where my triplex mindset sets in. And I began to see what are the ways in which we can divide up this thing and build a strategy for it. So professors do, they, they also give, they give you subconscious reassurance. It's like when you're reading a great book or you're listening to a great person talk. That, that's a bit reassuring, isn't it? That you can be in the same room or in the same mindset and then you can be understanding in this moment, the professor, I am leading you throughout this journey. 
And I think that's one of the biggest catalysts for when I recognize the beauty in a discovery or when I'm grateful for a program like UATX, I think those more nuanced feelings can be developed by interacting more with people who've gone through the process, who've seen how it works. And I think that's one of the biggest gifts that MIT has given me that I I just didn't think of it in that way when I when I got in. I didn't think of it as these professors can show me the way, but they did. And I think having the ability to interact with them, and especially in a place at MIT, the power distance is quite low. If students can email professors at any time, they go by their first names. You know, they even put it sincerely Dorian or whatever it is. And you just go up to them, ask them. You know, they have office hours, they have devoted periods of time in which we can just chat. And I think students. You know, especially me, I've tried to talk with the professors, share with them any ideas I have to get to next level to understand them better. But to build that same environment of intellectual curiosity that I had as a child when I was reading the math textbooks and the atlases, I want that back. So that's what I strive for at MIT. Amazing. Um, for our listeners, and uh, this is testing my geography knowledge, the capital of Rwanda, is it Kigali? That's correct. Fuck, you still got it. Um, yeah, you got it. Talk about professors uh, before we get into the rapid round. Did you ever uh, study under Gilbert Strang? Well, he did teach linear algebra, and I did see him mm-hmm. a lot in OCW, but I think we, we missed out on it. It's a shame. He seems like a true uh, servant of American academia. So uh, just he's the only one I know. I mean, some of these professors are like genuine superstar professors. Um, and, so, and, you know, the ones that have broke. He hasn't broken through the mainstream. I think he just got a bit of a hype because he just retired after 61 years. Um but it's kind of cool when I get when I. I, see, I think people. it was. I think it was sixty six. <laughs> what a lot! Uh, but yeah, uh, but there was a sixty six years. Goodness gracious! Uh, but there are people who are um, like there's a few people at Blast Fellowship who have the great fortune or maybe misfortune, depending on who you ask, of uh, going to Yale Law School. And there's some real, <laughs> real heavy hitters there. Um, Amy Chua is the one that I always ask about because she is a heterodox thinker. Um, and I read her Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, and yep, stereotypical Chinese, you know, violin, mathematics. Yeah. Uh, my wife, my wife's half Chinese, or ethnically Chinese. Her family's from Singapore, um, but, but yeah, piano, violin, um, and then <clears throat> and then went up from there. But it's uh, she wrote another book which I thought was even more interesting. Um, which was that why does some um, the three traits? I can't remember what it was, but it's essentially three traits which determine six, why some group, American groups why do some, a lot better than others. Yeah, some, I think yeah, Charles also wrote that. Yep, and it's about um, and it's a feeling of like it's this combination of like a feeling of like massive superiority to other people, coupled with like a crippling lack of self-confidence mm-hmm. um, and imposter syndrome is what brings, if you get those, and there's a third one as well, they're, they're the one, the triple package, that's what it's called, superior plus insecurity plus impulse control. If you've got mm-hmm. those three characteristics within your like social milieu, it has a massive effect on it. Um, and she talks about obviously people from East Asia um, Jewish people as well seem to seems to have a um, big effect as well, but she also talks about how it has a dissipating effect um, over time. Uh, this beca- this th- th- over time people integrate too much into the mainstream society, and what sets people on fire no longer has as big as an impact unless you keep stoking those um, flames. Um, 
a classic example would be uh, Melbourne High School. It's a it's kind of a bit like Stuyvesant in Australia. Okay. Um, so it's a like public school funded like a private school. You have to pass the test to get into it. And uh, when my when my when my mum was like, she's like every like in the 50s, 60s, 70s, same as Stuyvesant, everyone who went to Melbourne High was Jewish or Eastern <laughs> Europe or, or Eastern European. Okay. Everyone, every single kid. Okay. But now every single kid is East Asian or South Asian. Um, and all the people who are like Eastern European or like Jewish, they've essentially like moved out of that system and now they send their kids to um, like private schools. And it's all been flooded by like the new like wave of immigration that has come to Australia. And, I, and I've seen also, I remember listening to a podcast years ago on um, in the New York Times on Stuyvesant, which really, I, I think about it quite frequently about how, you know, Again, 50s, 60s, 70s, every single kid was Eastern European or Jewish. Now every single kid is like East Asian or South Asian. Um, and so that was, that was the big thing about Amy Dry. Shall we jump into the, uh, shall we jump into the, um, into the rapid fire crowd? Sure, let's do it. Sure, all right, let's kick off. Um, AI, savior or disaster? Depends on how you use it. You know, cop out answer, but I think it's the standard one. You're looking at, well, I think it, there's a lot of tasks that it can help us greatly, and especially in quantitative areas, mathematics, you know, mapping software as well, it could be great. In terms of drawing images and video, I think video AI in particular, being able to construct a video based on, let's say, CGI, but you can specify, I want a thunderstorm moving across Florida, and then it can generate that for you. That would be awesome. Everyone now can produce movies without having to consult some professional studio, and you can just make it on your own. That's super hard. And usually when you see great video channels, they often only have those seamless transitions because they literally got it as stock footage. And of course, there's millions of pieces of stock footage. But if you want something original, either you're going to hand animate it like Walt Disney, or you're going to generate it via AI. One interesting take that I, I think is, uh, you know, I do support Andrew Torba, the creator of Gab. It's the one big bastion of free speech and social media you know, people, you know, he describes himself as a Christian nationalist, but he has said, look, whether AI is beneficial or you know, detrimental to society, that's for us to determine. I want to build a Christian AI so that I can make sure that ChatGPT and OpenAI cannot overrun the world with wokeness. But we cannot expect to fight advances in technology by going Ted Kaczynski. It's not going to work like that. So we have to make sure that we use that weapon for ourselves. So I think it's you know, it's, it's inevitable, but depends on how you use it. Cool. What does woke mean? Woke? Well, the usual definition that they have, which is excessive hatred of males, you know, excessive hatred of white people. Those are usually the two main terms that connect them all together. And, you know, you get your usual buzzwords like uh, bring down the patriarchy and white supremacy. And, you know, uh, and, and now they're trying to mix in a new element of, you know, not male, not female and all that. But that's essentially what it is. It's it's ideology pushed down us and not good. I've never heard a good definition. I see it. Yeah, I'm the not the person to consult on The this best one, example, it question. seems like a constellation of examples rather than a bunch of it. Um, is Eric Weinstein a fraud in the mathematical space? Eric Weinstein. Describe to me what he's done. I. So Eric Weinstein, he is like an IDW member. Um, and he took, he talks, he's obviously very, he's quite a famous mathematician, but 
there's a big thing of a lot of people are famous. Just because you're famous doesn't necessarily you're talented, especially in academic fields. If you want to be a breakout, um, you don't necessarily have to be the best at it. You often just have to be the best at marketing yourself. So I was just wondering if you had any opinions on him as a mathematician versus like him as a... I, I don't remember. I do, know a, I do know a Brett Weinstein. Yeah, Brett's the um, Brett's the biologist. Eric's okay. the mathematician. That's I've all heard. right. Since I don't know much about him, I don't have much of an opinion. That's I'll all right. I didn't know. Yeah. Um, and the only other, because I just, it's fun to speak to people who know a lot about maths. Do you know anything about Terence Tao? Oh, yes. What do you think of him? One of the greats? Perhaps. Not much of an opinion either, you know, because when I look at when I when I went to college and I thought about, oh, here are the awesome people who have done so much. And then you speak to them and you realize, actually, they're just going through the same processes as everyone else. You know, when you think about who was the greatest, usually as people who've just been sitting in the same processes as the average, so to speak, but they've just done it longer or they've been able to achieve more success in a certain area. But there's not a shining gold cover in front of them that allows them to be invincible. So, you know, I don't, I don't have much to say about that. What's the worst bit of advice you've ever got? The worst bit of advice. <laughs> oh, you see, when I ask for daily advice, some of them just say, just be who you are. What is that even supposed to mean, right? I mean, if you're doing really well and you have your fundamentals knocked down and your strategy sound, then that's probably the greatest advice because yeah. that would make sure that you get the greatest results. But it's also meaningless. Now, if you're doing really bad and you don't have your fundamentals in order and all that, and someone tells you, you know, be yourself, then that's that's also terrible, not just because the advice itself is too nebulous, but also because it will lead you down the wrong path. But the reason why I think that's the worst advice isn't because it's wrong, but because you can't measure it. There's no way to determine it. It doesn't have a meaning. No. On, my, on my website, one of the articles I wrote was about my time stock trading. And I am a terrible stock trader. I don't know what to look for. And I lost $2,000 in the process. But I did generate right, some conclusions. Yeah, I'm a loser. But I did generate some conclusions. Well, just in stock markets, okay? Yeah. But I did generate some conclusions, one of which was make sure that when you have rules, make sure that you have specific measurable rules defined. Yeah. That way you can go back and analyze them and realize if they were good rules or bad rules. Having a bad rule, implementing it and using it and determining it was wrong is better than not having any rules at all or going at your whim because then there's nothing to measure. So there's nothing to improve from. So I think the worst advice isn't necessarily advice that turns out to be wrong, but mm. advice that just doesn't mean anything because not even it doesn't even qualify as advice. So <laughs> that, that is my piece of advice, so to speak, that has turned out terribly. I think that be yourself advice is bad, but the but but there is a but it's close to a very good piece of advice, which is be your best self. Because mm -hmm. all of us have multiple selves on us. There's a part of me that gets up in the morning that goes to the gym. There's a part of me that just wants to sit on the couch and play Candy Crush. You okay. Make a choice between those two. Yeah. Like just be yeah, like, I, I, just want self. I just want a girlfriend that just loves me when I was sitting around in my underwear eating Cheetos and just like wasting my life. Like that's part of you. But like be your best self. There's part of us which is like generous and competent. There's parts of us which are narcissistic and selfish. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have a choice to make that. And, you know, especially when, you know, I'm married um, now. So it's working for me so far. But nice. uh, be your best self, I think. Thank you. Um, be your best self is is a good one. Um, do you think we'll become, do you think you'll go to space in your lifetime? Do I think I'll go to space? No, I, 
you know, there's a Tintin episode. It's actually a two series. The first one is called, uh, let's see, what was it called? Oh, God. The first one was called Destination Moon. And the second one was called Explore, uh, Explorers on the Moon. And mm-hmm. Professor Calculus, who is this eccentric, super smart genius, he wants to build a spacecraft to explore the moon because there are rare earth, uh, no, there are rare minerals that can be collected and researched and they could have all sorts of applications for life on earth. So he wants to build a rocket to go to the moon. Yeah. And Tintin is a reporter, so he wants to see what's up with Professor Calculus, who by then is a friend of his. But Calculus actually invites Tintin and Captain Haddock, who is actually a sailor, right? So he's a captain for ships. And they get invited to go with him on the moon. And a few bad guys are secretly hiding in the rocket. Well, one bad guy is hiding in the rocket, Boris Jorgen. He almost kills the entire space crew, but eventually gets overpowered. And then when they get back and they successfully done most of their tests, Captain Haddock finally steps back on the Earth. You know, looks up at the moon and says, if there's anything I've learned from this expedition, it's that man's true place is on the earth. And I have to agree with him. I don't particularly fancy the idea of exploring other realms when, you know, I haven't worked this one out. I think it's, you know, the oceans are very, they talk about space as last frontier. Well, the oceans are still there. Human nature is always going to be here. That's something we'll always have to be doing battles with. But I think right now the planet is too interesting for me to want to go somewhere else it's the same idea as i think mark twain said this but the truth is actually sometimes stranger than the fiction i think in the same way sometimes when we dream about other planets and what they can entail most of the times the mysteries are actually contained within ourselves so personally i want to spend more time investigating the mysteries within myself improving myself getting to know other people who want to do the same and building up that type of community as for the extraterrestrials i think that is an interesting topic you know, I ha- I'm caught up on my reading with David Icke. He has been discussing extraterrestrial reptilians and the possibility of life on other planets. So that does pique my interest. But I do think right now I want to stay. I, I want to stay here a little bit longer. Interesting. Um, it was I was a I had one, but I think I might do, do a different. What is your favorite conspiracy theory? Favorite conspiracy theory. <laughs> well, I'll I'll have to go with, huh. I'm trying to think. There's a, there's a lot out there. There's a lot. The microchips. I mean, there there's talk about the the Jews being the reptilians, which is rather strange because Ike never said the Jews were the reptilians. So that's that one's rather false. Uh, let's see. Microchips and the vaccines is the standard one. That's I mean, yeah, it's there. But I I want something that's enduring. I want something that will that will hold me for a long time. I think it's I think it's got to be David Ike's moon theories. You know, he, he tells us the moon is actually hollow or that there are spacecraft within the moon and it's mostly hollow and that there are extraterrestrial organisms that operate under the surface of the moon. I think that's one of the more interesting ones that we should be able to test in, in the near future. You know, he points towards the, the lunar missions showing up large blurs, you know, large 20 mile blurs. And that's indicative, perhaps, of buildings that are on there. So I think I think that's one that we can investigate and. It will be interesting to see what we have because the Chinese people, you know, we do have Lunar New Year in which we worship the moon. But if, mm-hmm. as I claim, the moon truly is a broadcaster of negative energy, then may- maybe it would be it would be time to explore and see what we can get there. So I do that the moon one is a good one. Favorite classical composer? Beethoven by a lot. Haram! I... Did I just? Wrong. <laughs> Haram. Yeah. yeah no. to... Wrong answer. Go okay. Yeah. <laughs> Look, because Beethoven has the he has the repertoire and the training 
of a classical composer, but he also has the vibrance of a romantic composer. So I, you know, I've played many of Beethoven's works. You have his Fantasia in B minor, uh, sorry, in B major, which is all over the place. That one's got trills, arpeggios, all sorts of ornamentation. That one actually was one of the harder pieces I played in a, in a exam a few years ago because this is a piece that's very split up. Late stage Beethoven, not late stage, Beethoven later in life. Uh, well, I guess we could call him that. But it's late stage Beethoven. I haven't heard of that term, but I like it. Yep. Yeah, he has different stages of music that are so disjoint. At the one point, he's flowing with you know, beautiful arpeggios. At the other stage, he's staccatoing and bouncing all over the place, left hand, right hand, crossing. But the hard part about that piece is to put it all together under one fine tapestry. And that's the challenge of music when you get to high level. It's really two things. The first one is make sure that you have the technical finesse to be able to perform at a high speed and to be able to nail down the notes. The next part, which is also why some exams rank pretty highly, and that's because you need to be able to put the whole thing under one phrase. Not exactly, you know, by phrase, I don't mean peaceful or it's all slurred, but I do mean the whole thing needs to sound exactly as if it were one piece. And that under this unified whole, we have these components which we can break down. In other words, I think I, I sometimes refer to it as gracefulness. Maybe fluidity is a better way to describe it, but it's that holistic feeling you get when listening to a piece. And Beethoven with, with that piece, it's so hard to do. I think for me, it was the second hardest. The hardest one was Balak Hirev's Islami, which some consider to be the hardest piece. And I did play it a few times, but I don't think I got the, I don't think I've mastered the fullness of the entire selection, especially since technically it's also one of the most challenging. And yeah. back to Beethoven though. I I like that he's dynamic. He's expressive. He makes it clear what he thinks. I don't want to compare him to Trump because they're completely different eras. But look, I do see some similarities in the way they express themselves. You know, one in terms of politics and speeches, the other in terms of music and dynamism. And you know, I love Beethoven. I do not necessarily want my wife to think Beethoven is the best composer. I don't need two of me floating around. Okay. <laughs> Dangerous. My favorite is Tchaikovsky. Okay. I, ah, yeah. you're, you're drawing dangerously close. You see, once upon a time, when I was out talking with women and they would tell me Rachmaninoff was their favorite composer, I would, oh, admit, I would throw up a red flag. I would say, you're crazy. Get out of here. You know, Too many so, notes. Yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a bit insane at the composition at times. So I, I, you know, since then, though, I have removed it as a red flag. But you know, what do you think? Do you think I should keep it on there as dangerous? I think you should keep it on there. I'll tell you what's a great oh, yeah, thing. Okay, okay. If, if I rate Mendelssohn, who I think is the sleeper of the uh, composers. Mendelssohn's fine. Mendelssohn's good. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't like Handel. Um, I can't oh, handle him. Yeah. I, I, think I think he's a bit of a soy boy, honestly. Um <laughs> But his Royal Fireworks is great. That's the piece I sometimes... That's that's his most off-listened-to piece for me. Wagner's good, especially if you're a, um, especially if you're a Chad. Um, and my final question, this question I ask everyone at this is, um, you're a high-performing person. Everyone in the UATX program is. Um, what are some of the things... Becoming a high-performing person means doing things you don't always want to do. What yeah. are some of the techniques and tricks that you use to do things when you don't want to do them? Well, there's a few I can think of right away. The first one is there are people who have gone through a lot worse than you have. So you shouldn't be complaining as hard as you are. Hmm. Because you know, look at if, if you open a history book and you look at the generals and what they had to fight through and the, and the loss of their men, 
that alone is more losses than you have suffered in your entire life. So, yeah. you know, if you want to honor history, you got to get back up and join the fight again. And you know, David Icke, of course, the famous conspiracy researcher, he was laughed at for 30 plus years in a row. You know, he yeah. couldn't even go to the pubs without being laughed at in the UK. And it's like, yeah. you compare yourself to that. Have you received ridicule for 30 years? I mean, I'm not even 30. So when you compare yourself to them, suddenly you realize, wait a minute, my struggles aren't anywhere as close as they are. So, of course, now you need to recontextualize and you need to think, okay, let me get back up and let me keep fighting. The other strategy that I have is look at the momentum picture. Look at the diagram of your momentum and see where that gets you. Because yeah. one of my principles that I write about, uh, I think it's the dichotomy of self, the internal and the external. I say one of the most important things to keep in mind is sometimes you just need that positive base momentum. You yeah. just need to say right now, I don't know where I am on the absolute scale. I don't yeah. know if in 10 years or so I'll be feeling the same way about this moment that I did right now. But what I do know is that I have to make the best of it. And as I, as I like to say, you want to make the good times better and the bad times bearable. And that's the model I try to go by whenever I'm experiencing a struggle or I don't want to do something. I think, what is waiting for me later on? And one of the quotes that I have is, it's, it's always good to do your best no matter what, because you never know how you're going to feel once that time's up. And then you're going to look back on it and you're going to think, wow, I, you know, I could have done this instead. And oftentimes in sports, yeah. When I'm looking at the result, I'm thinking, oh, if, if you had just made one more point here, you could have won the entire thing. Or if you had just given one more bit of effort over here, that could have pushed you over the edge and you would never have suffered that embarrassing comeback. And that's why I think yeah. to myself, well, what about me? I should be, I, I'm saying the same things to myself, you know, if at this point I don't feel like doing this, but then five years later, I'm going to be watching that film of myself and I'm thinking, yeah, I should have just given that one more little bit. So, you know, depends on how much you want to value future me, but. For me, I think it's enough to look at the present and say, let me just do the best that I can. And let me remember that if I just do this little bit that I can in the time that I have, then maybe that will make the good times better and the bad times bearable. And that's all we can really strive for. And that's the greatest that we have. So I think that's... Your parents that's ever say, chiku to you? What's that? Chiku, eat bitter. Chiku, oh, tsuku, yeah. Oh, eat, eat the, yeah, eat, yeah it's, it's good. Eat the bitterness now so that later on you'll be better off. Yes, yes, that, that was said to me sometimes. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, Adam, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the UATX podcast. We've really blown over time, but it hasn't felt like it at all because we've had so much fun. Thank uh -huh. you so much for being on. And we will be joined next week with another guest from the Forbidden Conversations. Stay tuned for that one. Have another great week and happy 4th of July for everyone who celebrated it. And, um, Keep seeking the truth.